I was sitting in the shade Just wishing I could shine Now the sun has come my way And I feel like it's my time If it can't be gotten You know that I'ma get it If you never gonna swing Then you never gonna hit it So if I get a chance You know that I'll be taking it Because I have a dream Now watch me as I'm chasing it Looking at me Wonder, wonder, wonder How I'm working it The whole time I got in my mind What my purpose is What I'm talking about Just scratching what the surface is I'm the man with these flows I don't know what nervous is I really is. feel like it's my time And ain't no need in me lying I mean look at all these blessings Ain't no need in me crying That you selling Ain't no need in me buying I will never be forsaken Ain't no need in you trying Ain't no need, ain't no need 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 What up, what up, what up? I'm back, Jay Sutton. Another episode of the Destroying Doubt Podcast. Glad to be back, glad for y'all to have me. Got a special guest today. This guest, he's an international motivational speaker. He's raised over $20 million for nonprofits. He designs innovative programs for businesses. And he also attended Boston College. And this was all after serving 14 years in prison. I got a chance to meet this brother. He's a powerful brother. Got a powerful word for y'all. Glad to have him on the show. I'd like to introduce Mr. Andre Norman. Dre, what's going on, man? Talk to me. How you doing? Life is good, man. Life is good, man. I appreciate you having me. Just want to say it all to all the listeners. So Destroying Doubt, man, I'm glad you tuned in. It's a great place to be. Positivity reigns. That's what's up, man. That's what's up. I met Dre, you know, a little earlier. We we both got a chance to speak on the on the Black Wall Street tour. He had a powerful message today, man. So just share it with the people. Give, give them some of your story, man. Let them know about you. I mean, I grew up in the city, single mom, six kids, um, disconnected dad, Second youngest, struggled. Um, the struggle's not new to anybody who's listening, I'm sure. And it's fell off along the way. I mean, from not doing good in school to losing my focus, a lot of anger issues because dad not there, poverty, whatever you want to call it. All the way to the point, man, why this fell off and just went to the street. And when you go to the street, it's real simple. You die, you go to jail. I went to prison. I got about 100 years stacked up. Had to do about 25 of it. And I got inside, and when I first got there, I was kind of nervous. But then I realized all my friends from special needs, from juvenile probation, everybody I ever seen in the street, was all up at the penitentiary waiting for me. They was like, yo, Dre, man, what took you so long to get here? We knew you were coming. <laughs> I, took the long, I took the long route. You know what I'm saying? I went to trial on mine. They all copped out. And it was just like a reunion of all my friends from the old dummy class. That's what they used to call it. And it was just a penitentiary full of dudes who went to the dummy class and just couldn't read and write and couldn't process their emotions. And I got in where I fit in. And we just started, like, hustling in jail. Can you can you walk me through? Because we, we like to talk about on this show, you know, stuff that we've been through. And we all like to think that we've been through rough times. But none of us that I know of that I've had on this show or any of the listeners that I know personally have been in prison. Can you walk us through that that everyday life of being in prison i mean my stance on being in prison i like i said i served 14 years total i've been convicted of attempted murder behind the wall 
I've been shipped over eight to ten states for being violent and incorrigible. But I don't do war stories. The people who you ever hear do war stories ain't lived them. They're telling somebody else's war story. I'm saying I lived there, been been there, done that. Federal airlifts to all the federal penitentiaries, you name them, been there, done that, seen it, got the T-shirt. Prison is about misery. Prison is about hopelessness. Prison is about being disconnected from society and your family. And that's what a day in prison is like, man. It's just thousands of people, man, walking around hopeless. And we just try to find things to fill our day, hustling, fighting, and doing what else we can do in between. And that's it. I mean, it's an extension of the street at one level. And it's just a bunch of brothers like myself who was there, who at that time was just lost and confused. And we thought hustling was the way. And just because you put us in prison, you didn't stop the need or the drive to want to hustle. A lot of cats hustle harder in jail or hustle better in jail. So it's it's just a place, man. It's like a graveyard of hopelessness, man. And you just have to find your way to wake up. You know what I'm saying? And you want to wake up before it's too late. I've seen people not wake up and go home and they come right back. You're like, why these dudes keep going back and forth to jail? Because they stuck on hopelessness, man. Hopelessness doesn't get better by itself. So my hopelessness, like everybody else's, was real. And I came to a point, man, where I wanted something different. And I decided I was going to go get something different. And I was going to fight for it the same way I fought to be hopeless. I was going to fight to be successful. Because it wasn't easy being hopeless, man. I worked. I got arrested like 15 times. Had about 12, 15 cases before they actually sent me to the penitentiary. I worked hard to get there. And most of the people I know in the penitentiary wasn't on their first case. Most of them dudes were on their 5th, 10th, 15th, 20th case. They worked hard to get there. They put in a lot of work to get sent away. Very rarely do you go on your first case. So I came to the conclusion that I wanted better. I wanted more. And I was going to put the same effort I put into the streets and into banging and to trying to be successful. Did you start your speaking career in prison or did it cultivate when you got out? I started speaking in prison, but I didn't know it was as motivational speaking. I used to teach cats how to hustle in jail and give cats assignments on different things. That was just my life. Then when I changed my direction, I still had the ability to to speak into people's lives and people had some influence from me. So I would use that influence to a positive. I would say, homie, you got your GED. Instead of telling him to go on a mission, his new mission was to go to school. You know I started having people do positive things instead of doing negative things. And I started speaking to people not so much speaking at people. And I did that for like the last eight years of my sentence. Every day, I just try to be positive and be helpful. Because if I couldn't be helpful to myself, then I couldn't be helpful to anybody else. And as I was being helpful to myself, people were seeing the change. And they were kind of gravitating around and say, yo, man, what's up with Dre, man? There seems to be something different. And I was sharing that positivity. And it got to the point where if Dre's going to school, going to school is cool. Dre's going to counseling, going to counseling is cool. So I respected the penitentiary laws and the rules and the codes that we live by. I don't violate none of them because it is what it is. But there's no penitentiary law that says you can't go get an education. There's no penitentiary law that says you can't go to the law library and study and flip your case. There's no penitentiary law that says you can't get counseling because you got anger management issues. I know every penitentiary law, and none of those exist when it comes to bettering yourself. You ain't hurting nobody, you ain't telling on nobody, and you're handling yours. So... It's not in violation of any code ever handed down in any penitentiary in this country. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. 
I mean, so tell us about, you know, your transition out of prison. Tell us about that transition once you got out and, you know, the speaking that you did in there and how it translated to the outside. Um, My speaking career on the outside started with a promise. So if you're a liar, you're not going to subscribe to this. I was working in a program where they used to bring the kids up from juvenile detention to the state prison, and it would be six kids from juvie, it would be six of us, and one volunteer. And we would sit in the room and we would talk to them because we were four or five years removed from where they're going to be and where they are. And we would talk, we had like a little script. We would talk about family because our families and their families are going through the same thing. They're just younger. We talk about education, we talk about gang life, we talk about prison, we talk about holidays and what we're going to do next. It was like a a set little program. I did this program for like the last two years of my sentence. And then right before I got out, I told the kids, yo, man, I got some good news. Andre's going home. They're like, yo, OG, man, we're happy for you, man. But we got a question. Will you come see us when you get out? Everybody in this program, when they go home, they always promise they're going to come see us, but they never come. I said, yeah, man, shorties, I'll come through and see y'all. And the day I left, November 15th, I walked out of the prison, went to the parole office. I checked in. I left the parole office. I went to the youth center. It's right in the hood. I went by and seen them kids. I had a trash bag with my stuff in it. I had a ride. I went in and I talked to them kids for like an hour and a half. And they just appreciated me coming. They wanted me to come back the next day. And when you first get out, you got mad free time. <laughs> you got you just don't even know what to do with yourself. I just spent 14 years in a cage. Now I'm free. It's like, boom, you're out. So I had a lot of free time on my hands. So what I would do is every day go up to the youth center and talk to the kids. Like four days a week, I was up there. And I was going like four or five hours, just kicking with them one-on-ones and groups, talking from the platforms, kicking them with staff. And I was just there every single day that I could be out. Then after like two months of that, it caught on. Like, yo, this is dude who up at this youth center who's making crazy impact. I had no idea that other centers were completely out of control. I had no idea that this unit had been out of control before me coming. I was just doing me what was on my heart. Then somebody got word and it bounced around and somebody came and offered me a job. They're like, yo, dude, we want to give you a job doing gang outreach. I was like, all right, cool. And my first job was going right back to that same center where I'd been for the last two months and working with them kids. Now I'm getting paid. Then I went back to my old high school. If you ever want to find a place to start, your old high school, your teachers that were there when you were there are probably still there. And they loved you then. And if you come back, they're going to love you again. When I went back to my old high school, my teacher said, you know something? We were so sorry we couldn't help you the first time. We are so blessed that you came back to give us another chance. And they embraced me at my old high school. And I, was, I had four years of straight F's and straight drama. But they, they loved their students, and they gave me that opportunity to work with the bad kids, as you would call it, like I was, who were at my high school. And I started working with the high school kids. So high school kids, my mom's church, the local, D, the local lockup for the youth. And six months out, I got a job. I got four reference letters from a principal, from a nonprofit director. I'm saying from my, and it was just looking good. And I just kept the pastor. And it was just, I just kept building. And again, I had no concept of being a motivational speaker. I was just speaking truth to light and sharing where I saw life happen for me and how to help these young people avoid it. Then somebody said, Hey, Drake, can you come over to this college and tell us about your work? Hey, Drake, can you come over to this place and tell us about your work? And then after four years of doing outreach, I just went solo and said, you know something? I don't have to be bound by politics because my agency, like any other agency, had some politics attached. I just wanted to help people without strings. So in 05, I went solo and just started helping people. I didn't make as much money as first, 
we made $20 million in four years off grants and helping people and doing gang outreach and whatever the story was. So when I went solo, I started again from the bottom and just started working. I got one contract at a jail that I used to be in because people saw the change and they saw that it was real and they saw that I wasn't perfect, but I was effective. If you're effective and you're consistent, you can get work. And I was able to maximize those relationships and the work that I've done and just stayed constant. And the truth is, man, when people see you doing good things, they will step up to help you. I can attest to that. Over the last 17 years since I've been home, people I don't know have gravitated to me and offered a hand of helping because they see the work that I'm doing and they believe in the work. They don't believe in me, but they believe in the work that I'm doing and they see that I'm capable of doing it and they support that. So people get to believe in it's about them. It's not about you. For this season, for this time, you have this capacity. We loved Michael Jordan when he was a player. Nobody's thinking about Mike no more. He's not playing. We love Bo Jackson when he was a player. Half the cast only know Bo Jackson no more. So you're a great speaker now. We love what you can do for our team. We love what you can do for our city, for our kids. But it's not really about you. It's about the kids. And if you're effective and add value, then you'll find work. What what drives you, Dre? From, when I, from what I heard, what you just said when I was listening to you speak, it, it comes across that you don't want others to go down the same path that you did. And that's what I get from what you were saying. Is it something deeper than that or am I, am I dead on? Like, tell me what drives Dre. It's not that I want other people to go down that path. I want people to go down that path with a, with a clear choice that they had options. I mean, I believed I didn't have an option. Even though I did, in reality, have an option, in my mind, I didn't. And a lot of my homies who was locked up, we believed we didn't have an option. We thought that this was what we were supposed to be. We were supposed to be these people because we were so good at being these people. We were these crazy people that people respected, looked up to, or feared, or whatever the story was. We were good at it. It was a role. When you're born and you're two and three years old, you ain't nobody's gangster. You ain't nobody's bang, bang. You ain't nobody's nothing. You're just some little cute kid crawling around on the floor. But somewhere between three and four and 15, you became a hardened criminal. And between 15 and 21, you done went straight psychopath. These are learned traits. But at 15 and 16, we believe it to be us. We believe this is who we are and this is our destiny. And the truth is, I found out on the back end, it's not your destiny. It's a role. It's like being in the movies. I felt when I was in the penitentiary, when I got to that line, a chance to be the boss, it was like the Wizard of Oz. When you pull the curtain back and he's back there flipping switches and hitting buttons, I'm like, this is it? I mean, I've given my whole life and everything I love to be the king, and now I'm really becoming the king of nowhere. That's how I saw it. When I saw my seat and my chance at being the boss, what I saw was an opportunity. At first, it was an opportunity that I've always dreamed of and I've been fighting for. When I really got close enough to pull the curtain back, I said, I'm about to become the king of nowhere. And at the end of the day, nobody in Daytona, nobody in Miami, nobody in Tallahassee cares that I was a king of nowhere. It doesn't matter to them. It, it's, a, it's a mythical dream that we give ourselves, that we strive for, that at the end of the day is just that. It's a mythical dream that just fades. And the closer you get, the further it moves. And if you get lucky enough to, like I did, to actually get and pull the curtain. I actually pulled the curtain and had a chance to be the boss. 
And when I saw what was behind that curtain, man, I was just totally disheartened and disappointed that I had given my life to this bullshit. I mean, I gave my life to the bullshit, man. I mean, the clothes, the money, the girls, the clubs, all that was fun. But you, all that stuff is attainable without the bullshit. Yeah. I've been out here for 17 years. The girls, the clothes, the clubs, the travel, but not the bullshit. <laughs> so I could have had that before. Right, right. And so you you mentioned being a boss before and, you know, being the boss of the wrong things and getting that curtain pulled back and, you know, it wasn't what you thought it was. So now that you're a boss in the, you know, without the BS, like you said, you're doing it the right way. What gratification do you get of being self-sustained, being self-employed? What 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 does that say to you? What does that speak to for you? Well, the first thing I say is, man, to all my fellas out there who are bosses, not some make-up believe, I, you anointed yourself. But if you're really a boss and a king in your own right, when you come into this light and you transfer over, man, you maintain your status. You know saying you don't lose status because you transfer directions. You know saying you just have to put a little bit of work to get your status back up. But you're gonna be a boss for life, man. You know how you lose your boss status. I don't need to say it on there. As long as you don't violate none of the principles, which I have not, and you should not, you can maintain your boss status. So it's not reapply back of the line. I never go to the back of the line. It's not my life or my lifestyle. So I'm advocating to you none of the above. You can be a boss because you've earned that. Granted, you've earned it in a negative place, but you've earned it. You just have to learn how to turn it around and apply it in a good space. It's not as easy as snapping your fingers, but I'm here to attest that it's doable. So my belief about being free and being an entrepreneur and having my own spirit in my own way, man, is nothing better than that. The greatest thing for me is not that I make a lot of money or that I, I have my own job, my own my own career, my own business. Is The best part I have my own business is I can spend all the time I want with my kid. I can spend all the time I want with my family. I can spend all the time I want with myself. I flip out when I get stuck in rush hour traffic because I don't know what it is. <laughs> when I see rush hour traffic, I'm like, whoa, what's this? Where are all these people going? And I'm like, oh, they're going to work. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first time I remember, I was leaving a friend's house, and I was coming back to my house. It was like early in the morning. I used to shoot out. Then one day, I, I'm going, I'm driving in Boston. It was just so many cars on the, in, in the tunnel. We have a tunnel. There was so many cars in the tunnel. So I break my way up, get to up above ground. There's a ton of cars up there. I bang, try to go down the back streets. I'm like, where the hell? I'm, I'm calling people on the phone like, yo, there must be a massive accident. I'm calling people like, yo, somebody got hurt somewhere really bad. All the roads are shut down. And the person I'm talking to took them and they said, yo, Dre, ain't nobody got hurt? I said, yeah, man. Everything's blocked up and backed up. Somebody's hurt somewhere. They said, nah, nigga, that's rush hour traffic. <laughs> I had never been in rush hour traffic in my life. I was home for like two years. But since I work for myself, I get up when I want to. Mm-hmm. I never had to go out at 9 o'clock in the morning and try to go across town. I just so happened I got up at 10 o'clock, 10.30, and I go out the streets to clear. Mm-hmm. It was just like that until the first day. And I see rush hour traffic now, I laugh. It takes me a minute to recognize it mm-hmm. because it's just not in my psyche. When I get up, I don't plan for rush hour traffic. That's, that's what's up, man. <laughs> that's what's up. Didn't even know what rush hour traffic was. That's crazy. Hey, man, but, you know, to switch, you know, switch lanes a little bit. You mentioned something to me about Ferguson. Like, would you like to speak on that, about that whole Mike Brown situation and what impact you had in the aftermath of that? Um, first, man, blessings to the family of not only Mike Brown, but all the other people who've been lost, man, in this struggle of just equality and standing up and just, just what's right. 
I'm saying it's it's not a us them. It's just about what's right, man. People should not be dying over traffic stops. Um, people should not be dying over being black and wearing a hoodie. People shouldn't be dying. I'm saying if you got a gun and you waving it around, then that's something different, and it becomes a different scenario. But if you just going home and you 16 year old kid and you black and you look menacing to somebody, that ain't a reason to kill you. We we should be in the last I checked to out of those times. So when Mike Brown passed in Ferguson and they left him in the street and we know the whole scenario and the city erupted, I'm home watching it on TV like the rest of the world. And I watched every black leader, bar none, make a trip to Ferguson, Missouri and take a photo op. Now, I'm sure they'll say I did this, I did that, but I didn't see any tangible results. Tangible, measurable results is what I look for. You know what I'm saying? I learned that in university. (laughs) Tangible, measurable results. I never go for, you know, saying what you say you did or what you say you could have done. I saw no tangible, measurable results. All I saw was black leader after black leader, black celebrity after black celebrity, flying to Ferguson, doing a photo shoot, and flying the hell up out of there. And there was no change. Those brothers in Ferguson and the brothers who came to support them was on the ground every day doing battle with the police and the establishment, fire hoses, tear gas, you name it, beatings. It was just every day. And all the photo ops from the celebrity and leaders didn't do anything to change that. So when my phone rang, they're like, Dre, what you going to do? I mean, you're a leader now, man. You out here, you a boss, man. Do your boss thing. What's good? So I got on a plane. I flew to Ferguson. And unlike a lot of my counterparts who claim to be bosses and leaders and all the rest of these people, none of them went out at 11 o'clock at night. I didn't come out my hotel to 11 o'clock because there's nobody outside at 3 o'clock, y'all. So stop it. You know what I'm saying? 3 p.m., there's nobody outside on no day. I went outside. I went out at 11 and stayed out to like 3 or 4 in the morning, and I met them brothers and sisters who were out there protesting for their rights and for our rights to be free and be equal. And I talked to them. I said, dude, what is it that y'all want? What are y'all trying to get done? They were like, man, a lot of cats didn't know what they wanted. They were just frustrated and had enough. They said, Dre, I don't know what I want. I just want change. So I talked to them to say, listen, let me show you how to fashion and, uh, and, and articulate the change that you want. Because at some point, the, the powers that be are going to say, what do you want? And you have to be able to articulate that. So I didn't want to own it. I just want to show you how to craft it. I'm a motivational speaker, a strategic planner, and I understand the pain. So I helped them brothers and sisters orchestrate and put together the wording of how do you articulate what it is that you want what does a win look like so i asked them like what is you're out here what does it look like to win they didn't know they're like dude we have no clue because we've never been in this place before we had this type of power or this type of voice so i said well in that you need to start thinking about what a win looks like what does it look like you saying for a program what do you want to make this turn your way because you just can't stay out here forever and we had that conversation. Then I had a conversation with the mayor. I had a conversation with the police chief. Now, people hated the mayor, hated the police chief of Ferguson because they were the they were the establishment. They were the responsible parties in the minds of the brothers on the block. But at the end of the day, you don't get resolution without both sides at the table. So I happened to be a fellow at Harvard Law School under Charles Ogletree, an esteemed great black professor who actually raised up Barack and Michelle Obama when they were in law school. I talked to Professor Ogletree and said, listen, I want to bring this group of people to Harvard Law School. And he was open to that. And so under my fellowship, I brought 
the mayor of Ferguson, the police chief of Ferguson, the man who ran for governor of Missouri, three protest leaders and an economist, and we all came to Harvard Law School and we sat down and we had a discussion. And the discussion wasn't about who threw the first rock, who shot the first bullet, how long the brother stayed in the street, how long this or the other, it's how do we fix this? How do we come to a place where people can be free to live without pressure, People can get up and not have to go out at 11 o'clock at night to do battle with the police and tear gas. How do we get a win? How do we get a resolution where all sides can come to some kind of agreement? And when we came out of that, we spent time in a hotel. We all stayed in the same hotel. At first, it was kind of tense because people weren't happy with each other. But by the time it was said and done, Professor Ogletree masterfully and wonderfully orchestrated and managed the entire weekend. And we came out of there with some concrete solutions. And the solutions we came out of there was new relationships between the protest leaders and the police and the city. It wasn't that they were in love with each other. They weren't best friends, but they had a respect of, you have a job, I have a job, and we need to understand where we're coming from. And they went back, and now the next time they lined up in the street, the only difference was the police chief knew the protest chief. And it was a different dynamic. And the next time something went down, the mayor knew the protest leaders, different dynamic. And over time, that diminished. I'm not taking credit for that. That Over time, that diminished. And one of the protest leaders, who was a street battle rapper and an entrepreneur, tattoos, hanging out, doing his thing. You can see him on YouTube tearing it up. We had discussions. And on his own accord, he decided he wanted to, again, be a protester. He took his protest to the state house by by means of running for the state state seat, and he got elected state representative. Now that same brother, who was out there with a bullhorn, taking bu- rubber bullets and tear gas, is a state representative, and he's fighting for the for the rights of the people in the state house. What's That's what came name? out of his name is Fr- Frank Bruce Franks. Bruce Franks. Oops. His 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 battle rap name is Oops. Oops. Okay. Oops. Oops is a mean man. You know what I'm saying? Because he, 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 didn't, he didn't give up who he was. He didn't diminish his character. He just put a suit on. He's in the state house arguing for you right now. You can believe in a brother like Oops. He was out there on the front line, but that wasn't the place he should be all the time. You know what I'm saying? We have to go to the state house and change laws. They have laws that give people rights to stand their ground and shoot us. They have laws that say, well, if somebody's in fear of their life, even though they put themselves in a situation to make themselves fearful, is it regardless, they can justifiably shoot us. So we need to change the laws. You know what I'm saying? So the police are operating under the law. So once we change the law, then we can change the outcomes that we're receiving because they're technically doing it by law. So we can argue the treatment. We need to argue the laws. You mentioned changing the laws, and I don't want to turn this into a political show or nothing, but you mentioned something. You said that we can't get resolution without both sides coming to the table. And so my question to you was there was a a huge uproar when Steve Harvey and Ray Lewis and Kanye and all these other brothers went and met with Trump. Uh, Do you agree? You said that we need both sides at the table. Do you agree with uh, those people from our community meeting with Trump? I'll say this here. I tell you, I mean, Ray Lewis and Jim Brown went to the White House. And met, well, they didn't go to the White House. They went to New York. He wasn't in the White House then. And met with President-elect Donald Trump, now president. After the program in Ferguson that we held at Harvard Law School, 
The economist who I used to work with closely and the business, the man who ran for governor, I used to work with closely is like a brother. They started a group called Ferguson 1000. And that group was designed to employ brothers in Ferguson. After that program was up and became successful, and that program came about because both sides sat at the table, not one side. And then they reached out to Ray Lewis, who started Baltimore 1000. Then they reached out to Jim, who's starting. He has American out in L.A., but he's subject to start. I can't put it in, into existence, but I believe he's going to start or orchestrate L.A. 1000. So when they went to the White House, that program is a direct outgrowth from the people I worked with when I was in Ferguson. So I can't claim the program because it wasn't my concept or idea, but those are the two people I work with every single day who came up with it, and they put it out there. So I am 100% in favor of doing business with the President of the United States of America. I mean, how can you not be in a position to do business with the President of the United States of America and say, well, if you don't like doing business with the President of the United States of America, turn your blue passport in or find somebody they call illegal and give it to them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Find one of them undocumented people that they keep screaming about, I hate the terms, and give them your blue passport and you go to their home country. Because at the end of the day, you're American. And at the end of the day, he is our elected leader. So you can't change that. We have four years. You can vote again. Right now, Donald Trump is the president of the United States of America, the leader of the free world, period. I'm not asking do you like the man. I don't ask you if you like his politics. I don't care if you like his wife or kids. He is the president. So you not liking him, him being whatever you think he is, at the end of that, put president of the United States of America. So unless we can somehow find a way to change that, you got to deal with that. I'm a what is type of guy. They told me I had 100 years. I had to go to the library and change that. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't read. I had to go to school and change that. This man is the president. Ain't no changing that for the next three and a half years. So we have to deal with what is. The mayor of Ferguson is the mayor of Ferguson. You can't change that because you don't like him. We're not talking about his politics. We're talking about his office. We said the same thing about George Bush. We hate George Bush. He doesn't like black people, this, this, and the other. He was the president for eight years, period. Not liking him doesn't change that. So for black people in the hood, for black people on the ground, for black people in the penitentiary, don't feed into the, let's hate Donald Trump because he doesn't like black people. There's a lot of people who don't like black people. That's not our problem. Wanting to be liked is our problem. Stop wanting to be liked and stop worrying about wanting better situation for yourself. So it doesn't matter to me if somebody likes me. What matters is, are you going to treat me well? Wow. Uh, I mean, that's you dropped a lot of knowledge on, knowledge on us today, man. I appreciate it. Um, you, you've overcame a lot in your life. You spent 14 years in prison. You attended college. You're doing a lot of stuff in the communities. You know, you, you're a motivational speaker, international motivational speaker. Not That's right. Let me not leave that out. Um, with, is there anything you want to tell anybody out there, any last words to, to give some young brothers out there some positive motivation to, let, to, to help them through their, through their times? The name of this show is called Destroying Doubt. And my way of destroying doubt is to ask you this question, the same question I ask myself, why not? Stop asking yourself why and say why not. I said I wanted to go to Harvard University. They said I couldn't. I said why not? 
I said I want to be my own businessman. They said I couldn't. I said, why not? I said I want to be an international speaker. They said, Mm-mm, nobody's going to hear your story. There's a main of people like you. I said, why not? I wanted to work in Honduras. I wanted to work in Guatemala. I wanted to work in Saudi Arabia and Costa Rica. I work in all over the world, Australia, Sweden, London, Germany, all over. Why not? When you want to do something, don't let people tell you you can't because you're black, because you're uneducated, because your mother's on this, because your father's not there, because, because, because. That's other people's rationalization for what they can't do. When people tell you you shouldn't, it's because they don't believe they can. Or they're worried about you surpassing them. It's one of the two. Either way, it's not predicated on your ability, your dedication, and your discipline. If you are focused, you are disciplined, and you are willing to put forth the effort, anything you want can be achieved. I ask you now one question. Can you fly an airplane? Most of you would tell me no. So I will ask you, if I took you to the airport and I put you with four pilots and I left you for two years, when I came back, could you fly a plane? Most likely the answer would be yes. I would ask you, can you do open heart surgery? You're going to tell me, no, Andre, I'm not a surgeon. If I took you to the best hospital and left you for six years with the best surgeons, when I came back, would you have the basic premises understanding of open heart surgery? You will tell me yes, or I just need two more years and I will have it. The lesson is simple. Time spent with a teacher equals results. I want to be a speaker. So if I spend time with speakers, at some point I will become a speaker. Our parents told us a long time ago, you show me nine broke dudes, you be the 10. You show me nine dudes with a haircut, you be the 10. You know I'm saying we know that. So if you show me somebody with a teacher diligently studying, I will show you somebody who's going to achieve something at some point. So we stayed in the street and diligently achieved how to commit crimes and do stuff wrong, and we achieve penitentiary status. We work for that. Nobody, very few people were arbitrarily snatched off the street and just thrown in jail. I committed every one of the crimes they charged me with and a bunch more that I didn't get charged with, that just went by the wayside. And that's how life is. I work really hard. I spent time with criminals. I became a criminal. Now I spend time with professors, I spend time with other speakers. I spend time with business people, and that's what I've become. Whatever you surround yourself with and you strive for, you will become. So my brothers and sisters who are listening, don't listen to the naysayers. When they tell you you can't, that just means you can. You tell them, I'm sorry, you don't have the wherewithal or the capacity or the dream, but I'll go live it for both of us. And when my homies call me from the penitentiary, yo, Dre, what's going on? I tell them, I'm at Harvard Law School. I'm at London Business School. I'm at MIT. I'm in L.A. I'm on the ground in the hood in Watts. I'm on the ground in Daytona. I'm on the ground in Miami. I'm on the ground in Charlotte. I'm on the ground. I'm going to Chicago. I'm on the ground in St. Louis. I'm on the ground in New York. I'm on the ground in West Africa. I kissed the ground when I touched on Africa for the first time. It was the biggest blessing of my life next to having a kid to actually step foot in Africa. They call us African-Americans, but we ain't never seen it or understood it. I sat on the shores where the slave ships left from. Mm. And I got a chance to see it from that side. I said, our people left here in ships, and now I'm back. And I'm back, not caged, not in chains. I'm a free man. They have a town in Liberia called Freetown. Because when the slaves were freed in America, a lot of them were sent, were allowed to go back, and they went to Liberia. And they set up a little colony in a little township now. It's called Freetown, Liberia. It's in the city of Monrovia. 
You can go anywhere you want. If you have a criminal record, I can't travel. That's a lie. I got a gazillion felonies. I've been all over the world. I'm on my fifth passport. As long as you don't have open cases, as long as you don't have, no, you can have an open case. You can't be on supervised release, parole, probation. If you're not on parole, probation, you don't owe child support, you can go get a passport and go anywhere in the world but Canada. Don't mess with the Canadians. They ain't going for it. <laughs> they, Canadians ain't going for it. <laughs> it's too close to proximity. They're like, dude, you can just come up the street from us. But Australia's like, look, if you flew all the way here from the United States, you ain't coming with no drama. Germany's the same. Saudi Arabia's the same. You flew all the way over here from there, you ain't causing no drama. So I say to you, in all sincerity, your dreams are to be respected first and foremost by you. Your goals are are to be respected and garnished first and foremost by you. Your achievements and your success are solely based on your discipline and your commitment, not on what your friends think or what your family thinks or what your PO thinks. I was on probation for five years. Didn't stop me one bit. I've been with the same dysfunctional family for 49 years. Hasn't stopped me one bit. I mean, I love them, but we're dysfunctional. Me and my sister had a conversation today. She said, on one to ten, what do you think we are on a dysfunction? I said, ten plus. <laughs> I mean, we go all in. I mean, my mother put out six wonderful kids, and we are all off the hook. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that doesn't mean we can't bounce back. And that doesn't mean you, you can't bounce back. Success is what you define it. And I'm sitting here today because not to get paid, not to get social media likes. A success is not a success without a successor. So I'm here looking for successes. Who wants to be successful? Andre, have you reached back and helped somebody who was in your circumstance rise up? Have you reached back and helped people who are trying to come out of that same box that you got out of because you know the way? Since I know the way, I am obligated, so says Harriet Tubman, to go back and help other people find freedom. Not, I got there, man. They can get there, too. I don't like that adage. Harriet made it. She turned around and went back. She said, why are you going back? She says, I know the way. And if I go, they'll make it. If somebody else goes, they're subject to get caught and be in bondage forever. I know the way out. And I want to help you come out. So no more doubts. No more. No more. I can't. No more. You know what I'm saying? Stalling and procrastination. You wanted help? This is help. You know what I'm saying? This is real nigga shit. I am not make believe. I don't care what you think. I'm here, and I'm going to help whoever the hell I want to help. I help Spanish people. Como esta, mi amigos, mi hermanos. Tu sabe, yo aquí para ti. Gracias a Dios para todo. Speak it. Speak it, sí, claro que sí. Yo hablo eso porque yo vivo allá más o menos 10 años. Eight years I lived in a Spanish-speaking country. I got I, I do my beans and rice, you know what I mean? Hit that Dominican on him. Hit that Dominican on him. <laughs> yo, no, yo no sabe tu quería hablar eso ahora o no. <laughs> Es, es, yo hablo español un poco, pero no mucho. Pero es más o menos siete años yo vivo allá, tranquilo. Pero mis hermanos, mis hermanas, tú quieres cambiar su vida, tú quieres diferente en ojos, llama para su hermano. Yo aquí para ti. Siempre, todos los días, siempre yo aquí. Yo trabajo para Dios, no trabajo para el diablo. Yo trabajo solo para Dios, para su corazón, su vida, sus hijos completos. ¿Ya you know I mean? So, Spanish folks, French folks, white folks. What did you just say, though? I said, man, I'm here for you, your kids, your family, best I could. You call me if you need me, mm. and I'll help you. Mm. I have no limitations. I have no biases. If my phone rings, I don't say, are you black? 
If my phone rings, I don't say, are you white? Mm. My phone rings, I don't say, are you Republican? Are you related to Trump? If my phone rings, I say, how can I help you? Mm. That's my purpose. How can I help you? There's no questionnaire on the front end of that. And when I train people, I say, do you help people or do you help a specific group of people? Now, granted, I love black folks because I happen to be black and I'm going to die black. So I have a privy and a space in my heart for that. But I help people. I don't disregard anybody. When my phone rings, there's no questionnaire to color, ethnicity or financial background. If you broke, if you're rich, if you're white, if you're black, if you're Spanish, if you got papers or no papers, if you're a prostitute, if you're a, a prosecutor, I don't care. My phone rings and says, Dre, will you help me? If I have it in my capacity to help you, I will. And that's what I teach. So if you're in the division and that other stuff, man, I'm not the dude to, to come get with. You know what I'm saying? I do three things. I travel the world, I help people, and I make money. Mm. Now I don't apologize for none of the above. Mm. I accept all, all denominations and currency. You want to pay me in pounds? You pay me in pesos? You want to pay me in yen? I'm taking that. You want to be black, white, Spanish, or Chinese? I'm taking Chinese people, and I'm taking Chinese money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm helping Spanish people. I'm helping taking pesos. So, it's, it's, listen... I help anybody. It's not just about the money, but I'm diverse. Them days of being stuck in a, I'm a color, I'm from a block, I'm from a certain set of town. They, I've heard it said, and I didn't understand it, there's only one race, human race. Mm-hmm. I play for the black team. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, that's, that's a given, right? But, you know what I'm right. saying? I'm in the league. Right. LeBron's in the league with Steph. They're in the same league. So if the league shuts down, they both lose. Mm-hmm. You have the league has to be there for them to somebody's gonna win the chip, but the league has to be there for them to both to make it. So I'm in a human race. Cool, I play for the black team, but some white folks have joined the black team. That's cool. You know what I'm saying? I remember Dave Chappelle had the, the black the, um, the race Olympics. <laughs> and it was like, oh, send me Wu Tang. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we'll give you OJ. I mean, it's all it is what it is, man. I mean, we can laugh, we can have fun, but um, if you know me, you know I'm dead serious. And I'm about my business, you know what I'm saying? And my business is helping people, period. You know what I'm saying? I won't let anybody define you can't help this one or that one. I don't work for you. I work for Andre Norman Incorporated, and I love my boss. Hey, there it is. There it is. And I thank you so much for joining me today on the show, man. Thank you for spreading the, spreading the word, dropping knowledge. Oh, you got something else? Well, oh, hold on. Now, if, if you want to you holler at me or just, I mean, I'm not huge on social media, so don't be like, how come he's not posting a lot? Because I got work to do. You know I'm saying? <laughs> the people will be posting all day and got shit to do. They ain't really helping nobody. They're busy trying to get you to like them so they can sell you some shit. <laughs> you go on, um, what's it, Instagram? It's Andre Norman, all one word, A-N-D-R-E-N-O-R-M-A-N. My, my website's even more tricky, www.andrenorman.com. <laughs> My Facebook's even more trickier, Andre Norman. I mean, I keep it basic. I'm saying, and for those, Andre Norman, everything. Andre Norman, everything. See, I bought all. I got all that stuff before anybody got hip to it. Like eight years when that first came out, I got the Andre Norman everything. LinkedIn, Andre Norman. I ain't been on there like a year and a half, two years. So you hit me on LinkedIn. Don't be shocked if I don't hit you back. (laughs) But um, easiest thing to do, email us info at andrenorman.com. I-N-F-O at Andre Norman. Yo, it's real basic. And you can always call my man here at the show. If you want to holler at me, holler at my man. Holler at him and say, yo, man, I want to get at that dude Dre, and he got my math. 
Don't be giving my number out to everybody. <laughs> One of no goddamn strange people call me talking about, yo, it's 3 in the morning. I got voicemail. <laughs> I don't block people. I just say, stop fucking calling my phone. <laughs> That's my block. They're like, yo, you can block them. I'm like, nah, nigga, I ain't got to hide. Stop calling my shit. <laughs> I be cracking up. People be blocking people, right? <laughs> Bitch ass nigga. <laughs> stop calling my phone, nigga. <laughs> hey, hey, you heard it here. I ain't got to say no more. My man dropped all the knowledge on you. We out. Just look for it in the future because me and my man gonna be partnering up on some stuff. We in the same field, so look look for it does coming at you. But the thanks for listening. What's, what's that? The academy training people how to speak. Mm. Just be out in a month. Mm. You heard it here first. Peace.